0: What's the cost of defeat? How much are you willing to pay for victory? Anybody who has the money to purchase a proficient and capable precision air force can now do so. We have to get away from the concept of controlling robots, and we have to get into the concept of commanding robots.
1: Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the MAD Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of MAD Scientist. MAD Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMADSci, or subscribe to the blog, The MAD Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Colonel Retired John Antel, John served 30 years in the U.S. Army commanding tank and cavalry units. Outside of the Army, he's become a successful author and military consultant, teaching leadership values to individuals and groups. He'll be talking to us today about the implications for future conflict from the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, the opportunities and challenges of drone warfare, and the future of maneuver. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be on the Mad Scientist podcast. And I'll tell you, you guys do tremendous work. Thank you.
2: Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. And we're just excited to have you on today. Um, You know, I want to get in first just to your background. You served for 30 years in the Army, commanding tank and infantry units. um, And now you do a lot of writing and speaking. How did you get into writing? And can you really tell our audience a little more about your background?
0: Well, to get into writing first, I think you have to read. I always tell people you have to read to lead, and you certainly have to read to write. So if you're a great reader, you have a great opportunity to be a writer. Then you have to practice writing. And I was uh, blessed in that I was committed to writing about subjects that I thought would help our Army. So I started writing in professional magazines, professional journals. So I wrote in Armor Magazine, Infantry Magazine, Army Magazine, those kind of uh, sources. And that's really powerful for our army and for our military in general, because it allows young authors who've never been through an editorial process and never been through a professional publishing, uh, you know, episode to do that and to learn. And so I wrote there, and uh, pretty soon uh, I decided when I went to uh, Leavenworth, CGSC, the Command General Staff College, that um, I wanted to write a book, and I wanted to write a book to train army officers. And so. I wanted it to be different. So I wrote an interactive story called Armor Attacks. And that story puts you in the boots of a platoon leader. And it was a series of combat decision games where you, you came to a point and it said, okay, uh, here's your choices, a, you know, one, two or three, what would you choose? So you had the opportunity to be a hero or a zero. And then you went from there to that page, to another page, which was your decision. So it might say, go to page 73, if you choose you know, path one go to page 77 if you choose path two. And that's how you would do it. So, it was like a choose your own adventure book, you know, only for for uh, Army officers. And um, so, I went to the um, the guys at Leavenworth after I had this thing finished. And while I was there, you know, I was, I was at the Command General Staff College. I was getting my master's degree and I was writing this book. I just, you know, so I wanted to do that. And And so, I brought this book to them and I said, hey, would you guys like to have this for the Army? And they looked at it for about a week and came back and said, we don't do this. We don't publish this kind of stuff. And I thought, well, heck, now what do I do? So I sent it to a publisher, and a week later, I got a contract. Those started me on my path to being an author, a book author. And since then, I've published uh, 16 books and have focused lately in on writing leadership books. So I've written seven leadership lessons of the American Revolution, seven leadership lessons of D-Day. I've just written a book, which will be published in the fall, called Leadership Rising, It's all about how to grow your leadership awareness and be a better leader.
2: Now, that's phenomenal and a fascinating background. Uh, and I want to remind our listeners that the Army is happy to publish you if you contact us at Um, But no, they, we love your work, and I think it's really phenomenal um, to connect with with the forces like that and try and cultivate that next brand of leaders uh, and what we're trying to learn from history, as you said. Now, getting into your writing, you know, recently you wrote a piece called "Death from Above" um, on on the impact of On man Systems on the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War. Can you tell us a little bit more about this piece and really what were your insights from this?
0: Yes, Luke, I'd be happy to. And by the way, you know, you and Matt, both as students of warfare, understand the value of studying what's going on. Now, for years, we've been talking about how the methods of war are changing, but many people feel that uh, some of those methods of war uh, are a little too far out, a little too sci-fi. They won't really happen. And then what happened was we had this war, the second Nagorno-Karabakh War, which happened in uh, last fall uh, from the 27th of September to the 10th of November, uh, to 2020, 44 days of war. And in this war, you will see all of the seeds of MDO and the doctrine we're talking about. And you will see in there so many things that we can derive lessons learned from. So I think that this war is critical for us to talk about. Now, in Death from Above, I was primarily writing about uh, the full motion video capture of the UAS and how that was revolutionizing warfare in the aspect of winning the information war, providing a very good opportunity to do reconnaissance on the fly, I mean, literally on the fly, and um, to be able to also get a good battlefield damage assessment. So, you see, we've never had in the past... The capability not not in a grand scale not in a larger scale to be able to see where our weapons hit we were able to see the effects from afar but now imagine every weapon has a sensor in it so eventually as we start to see an internet of battlefield things where all weapons system all projectiles have sensors of some kind some have very rudimentary some have more high sophisticated sensors but they see the battlefield so as they fly toward their targets they are lighting up the battlefield. And because of this, we're now able to do all sorts of things. And if you've uh, looked into any of the Israeli uh, uh, weapon systems, uh, such as the Spike LR, and some of their UAS systems, particularly the Herop, what you can do is that while these things are flying, they're initially set off in a human in the loop mode where you say, yes, go off and fly, And they fly to an area and if they're a loitering munition they'll loiter for up to six or hours or more depending on the system they'll look for the target that's within their target parameters and then once that's done if you just give them the permission to go or just give them permission to hunt they'll go human on the loop and they'll come down and to go human out of the loop and go straight into their target and dive down and kamikaze like into the target that is an impressive precision strike capability that We haven't seen in other wars. We've used drones primarily in UAS primarily as sensors on the battlefield for other weapon systems. And yes, Reaper and Predator have been used very successfully, you know, in a direct action mode. Uh, But those were high-end systems that very few nations could could afford. And we didn't want to give them to many nations. So you had to be part of our alliance structure in order to get those weapon systems. Uh, But now the democratization of UAS where UAS are now cheaper, made by more countries, and are now easily purchased, Uh, cause of a situation where you can create an air force if you've got the money. And this is a game changer in many of these medium wars between medium powers, but it's also a game changer in a fight in peer-on-peer competition.
2: No, I think those are really important insights. And I want to pull the thread a little bit um, when you talked about, you know, this advancement of loitering munitions uh, and what that means comparatively to the kind of drone strikes we've seen throughout really the global war on terrorism um, that, that we've seen throughout OIF, OEF, um, what what we've done as a U.S. with Predator and Reaper. Um, but really what do you see as the next evolution then? Is it just the wider proliferation of loitering munitions or are we looking at an advancement in swarming as well?
0: Well, those are key critical questions. And I've just developed a list of uh, I'm continually working on the lessons learned of the second Nagorno-Karabakh war. And uh, I have 10 lessons that I'd love to go through with you during, during our talk. But to answer your question in specific, the next step, is interesting because uh, it will truly change the methods of war. Right now, in a peer-on-peer competition that you saw in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, two countries that are relatively equal but had different warfighting methods. Uh, there's great similarities in, in, in situations in the past between their warfighting methods. And the Azerbaijanis had studied their last war where they lost 77,000 casualties, uh, which was, uh, was horrible for them, and they lost the war. So they were eager to win. So you kind of consider the same feelings that the Germans had against the French in 1940 kind of thing. And now we're looking at two countries that were closely aligned in the sense of their power capabilities and their military capabilities, and one decisively beat the other in 44 days. That's pretty impressive uh, when you think about, first of all, how many decisive wars have there been recently? And secondly, uh, don't forget that even during Desert Storm, I mean, this is ancient history for some, but we had a 37-day air campaign. So this whole war took 44 days. Now, the scale of this is a little different and every war is different. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, it's, it's apples to apples, but it's very important to look at this. So the next step is, is really uh, interesting because right now we see these weapons primarily with human on the loop control. And what that means is a human basically is either a human in the loop is either flying the missile, flying the UAS to the location and directing it directly. That's human in the loop. Or the loitering munitions, which are human on the loop, meaning you can turn it off or turn it on. You could turn it off and have it fly back automatically back to to a landing strip that you designate. The next step is going to be the ability for these to connect and swarm together so they can have three, four, five missiles attack the S-400 air defense system and knock it out because no matter how many air defense systems you have there, you're not going to be able to get them all. And the ability for these things to be totally human out of the loop. Now what that requires is a little bit more AI, a really good position navigation system and the ability not to be jammed. But once that happens, these will be very, very difficult to destroy. Now there are ways to destroy them. And everyone's saying, well, this is not a big, some people are saying, this is not a big problem. We know how to destroy these. And I go, very good. What's fielded today? What do we have today that can stop it? Don't give me hypotheticals and don't tell me how lasers are gonna solve the battlefield problems of the future. How many do we have deployed? And how long is it going to take us to create the kind of systems that we have to defend our combat forces, defend our C4ISR nodes, defend our our logistics system? I mean, imagine if loitering munitions attack your logistics system. You don't even have to attack the, the combat units that might be more protected. And how long will that line of logistics go? And what if they don't care what country that's in? You know, so there's all sorts of ways to look at how these things, these new weapons could be used. The UAS are not the silver bullet, but they are a new method of war. And it's about basically a third revolution. Some people are calling it the third revolution, most important since gunpowder, which is the automation of war, the robotization of war, the use of systems like UAS. And they don't always have to fly. We've talked about smart, intelligent minds that can move. There are many things that have been talked about. It's a matter of how what's deployed and what's being used. And right now you've got countries like Israel, Turkey, many others, but those primary ones were the ones involved in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war that created systems that were basically unstoppable by the Armenians.
2: I want to get to um, your 10 lessons learned from this, but first I want to ask, do we have You've you've looked at the numbers for uh, what these cost um, in terms of the the UAVs, but also some of these smarter technologies that are emerging, like you talked about smart mines that are maneuverable, um, things like that, uh, where we're seeing really a revolution in a lot of unmanned systems, not just uh, those UAVs. So, do we have a capacity problem? I know you know there was an interesting article from about it's about three or four years ago now, where um, one of our Middle Eastern partners shot down a UAV uh, with a Patriot missile, which, you know, we're looking at a very inexpensive UAV versus a very expensive missile. Um, Do we have a capacity problem? And are we going to be on the wrong side of the cost curve?
0: Well, that's a very good question. Uh, And I've had some people tell me that the ROI of these drones is that they're too expensive and that, you know, they're, they're not going to last long. The second Nagorno-Karabakh war was only 44 days. They couldn't, have, they couldn't have gone on beyond that. But the question I ask them is, what's the cost of defeat? How much are you willing to pay for victory? Americans' victories have always been won by an overwhelming spending power and an overwhelming ability to create what we need. If you looked at what it costs for us to win a firefight in Vietnam, or a, or a, a uh, win a firefight in Afghanistan. The numbers are increasing. They're not going down. It costs us more and more to do this kind of fighting. Plus, we're putting our people at risk. So you have some really interesting intangibles. First of all, there's expense, and then there is how many people are at risk. And what's your most uh, expensive effort? We cannot create a human being uh, to do what all tra- trained soldiers to do in any kind of machine. And we will not be able to do that probably for hundred years or so or more, who knows, maybe decades at least. But to be the ability of, of a well-trained soldier to accomplish missions, to adapt, improvise and overcome is amazing. Our greatest asset is our people. However, there's no reason for us not to use robots forward to those people. For instance, I see one of our solutions for some of our tank issues. We can't put any more on the M1A2 set V3. You keep adding stuff to it, it's, it's just going to be a pillbox. You can't do that. So what we need to do is we need, we need a new vehicle, but that's another story. So since we have all these, what could we do to make them more survivable? And one of the things we need is, we need is a swarm of UAVs around them. And that those UAVs deflect enemy missiles coming in. Maybe they hunt down the enemy UAV. Maybe they provide some kind of uh, a means to obscure the position and the targeting of the tank, you know, especially the, the ability to target. And I, I wanna talk about masking later, We need to understand a concept of masking, and this should be part of our of our doctrine. And we're not, and we need to we need to work on that. The idea that you have to be very hard to target. So why not use UAVs this way? And one of the things that that I consistently get when I talk to people, and I've talked to to uh, some uh, very influential people about this, and given briefings on the uh, the Second Nagorno Karabakh War to many people, one of the things that they they often say is, "This is scary. I'm concerned. We have a lot of." uh, of things we have to fix, uh, this could be a real problem for us. And I go, yeah, it's an opportunity too. I'm less interested in what they're gonna do to us. I'm more interested in what we can do to them. We should be the leaders in this field. We have the best and brightest and we have more money than most of these folks. So why can't we start thinking positively about how to use these things just like I was suggesting with the M1 tank. If we had a swarm of UAVs and I'm not talking about controlling them, we have to get away from the concept of controlling robots and we have to get into the concept of commanding robots, where you just give them a mission and they do it. You don't have to control them with a joystick. Hell, that was something that was done in World War II with the Goliath. The Germans had a, had a robot that they would use a joystick to, to drive in enemy lines and explode. I mean, this is ancient history. We need to start having these, these small robotic systems, like, for instance, swarming an M1 tank, defending it, defend it from top attack munitions and from all sorts of other things, and have multiple capabilities, and none of this has to be on the tank. It just surrounds the tank.
2: No, I, l- I love that answer for a couple reasons. One, um, I like the paradigm shift as well, away from this idea of how we conventionally have thought about the control of these remote vehicles um, and and how we do it now in terms of a purely ISR strike platform. Um, and what can it do in the future as, a, as an obscurant, as a defender, um, all, all sorts of different activities, even sustainment potentially in the future. So what can we do um, with all these activities I really like that approach, and I think as well we need to start thinking about just as you said, how can we be proactive? How can we exploit um, our adversaries when it comes to this? Rather than say, "Oh, it's doom and gloom. This is this is awful. These disruptive technologies. Um, how do we get after them? And how do we expose those fractures?"
0: Imagine if we took one of the M5 ripsaws, or we took a, a mill rim like robot. Uh, And it would have an electric motor in it, just electric engine. So it could be repowered by a drone that flies on into it and recharges it by battery. And this thing did nothing more than put out multispectral smoke. Well, heck, you could put it on human out of the loop and you could say, I want you to smoke this grid square and just turn it on and let it go back and forth. If the enemy blows it up, you blow up a robot. It doesn't have to last forever, but that might be one way to get us into a portion of masking because part of masking is to be hard to see.
1: Sir, first off, let me say thanks for being here for this discussion. Um, what you just said was, was very illuminating, and I hope we can get into, into some more depth here. I want to real quick, though, emphasize a point you made uh, in your first response when we talked about how to become a better writer. And I bring it up just to kind of hammer home this. We had uh, a previous guest over the summer. Uh, his name was Keith Law, and he's a baseball writer. And he, he authored the book that's right above me here that our audience won't be able to see, but you can. And we posed that a similar question to him, and you both had the exact same answer. If you want to be a better writer, you have to be a reader. And I only bring that up to show how universal that advice is, because you guys couldn't have, I mean, your, your career paths are completely divergent, but in order to make yourself better at what you do, you're both doing the same thing. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Now, let's start talking about, as you mentioned previously, your, your lessons learned from this study. Um, and I know you've got 10 of them. Let's talk about what you think maybe some of the most important ones are for for the U.S. as a nation and our allies and our partners. What what can we learn from this?
0: Yeah, there's so much to learn from this war. Um, We have an opportunity. We can sit back and say, well, we're very smart and we're very successful and we're the best. We're the top tier dogs. We really can't learn from anybody else. That would be pretty stupid. If we don't learn from everyone else, we're just missing it. And some people say, well, this war isn't, it doesn't rise to the level of the Yom Kippur War. It isn't like the Spanish Civil War, blah, blah, blah. It's not like the, the um, you know, the archers at Crecy or Corps. I got it. Look, what counts is that we learn from what happened. And this was the first, the first uh, peer fight against nation states in the 21st century using all of these new systems. It wasn't a, uh, you know, a, a counterinsurgency operation. It was a, a major fight That was decisive, and it ended in 44 days. Now, that's worth studying to me. Uh, Some people said the Russo-Japanese War wasn't worth studying because the Japanese, the Russians, the Russians, you know, all that wasn't any good during the time. And if they had studied that war and really studied it, they would have learned so many important lessons, and some did. So this is the kind of thing that we as professionals need to do. What's sad is that I've talked to many people who should know who've never even heard of the war. Now, we've been very wrapped up in internal situations in the United States, and I understand that. But the lessons from this war are critical for us. And there are some of these lessons that I'd like to go over now. Uh, the first one is very simple. Some of these things, don't. you're going to go, well, no kidding. I mean, this is, this is warfare. But some of these lessons need to be reinforced. So the first one is know yourself and know your enemy. Now, that's straight from Sun Tzu, and you think it's very simple. But you know what? The Azerbaijani studied their last conflict, the one they lost and had so many casualties from, And they adapted new ways to win. They had better equipment. They had better organization. They had better training, better preparation, and better leadership. And that was key, no doubt about it. But they studied. So they said, we lost that war. How could we win? And let's focus to win it. And they really did. And that was what is important. So what we need to do in the same way is we need to know ourselves, and we need to know our enemies and we need to focus on them on how we could beat them. And that's where our war game should be. That's where our thinking should be. And that's where our discussion should be. Second, set the conditions for success before you fight. That seems obvious, but the Azerbaijanis did a tremendous job in getting Turkey and Israel as their allies. Now you're saying Turkey, why would Turkey be their allies? Well, the Azerbaijanis consider themselves a Turkish people and they consider themselves a two nations, one state kind of thing where they're basically a a province of Turkey. And the Turks and the and the Azerbaijanis want to have a landline to each other, a land link to each other so they can put a pipeline in because Azerbaijan it has Baku and all the oil fields where they made a lot of their money and they want to ship that straight to Turkey, straight out to the Med. And for them, that's really powerful. And that bypasses Russian pipelines, you see. So there's a big power play there. So they set the conditions for success up, you know, before the war. The Israelis, for instance, why would they... Why would they support a Shia government in Azerbaijan? Well, the Israelis are one of their biggest allies uh, for many reasons. But one reason is that they get a lot of their oil from there. Azerbaijan gets a lot of their farm products from there. And don't forget that Azerbaijan is right on the Iranian border. And isn't it great to have listening posts and launching platforms and other things if you ever had to fight Iran? So the Israelis see this as a strategic game with them. Setting the conditions for success also meant that the Azerbaijanis and the Turks in particular, the Turks, had to neutralize the Russians. Because one of the fears was that if the Azerbaijanis attacked the Armenians, the Russians might, because Armenia is part of their NATO-like structure, that they might, they might attack because they, they have an alliance with, with, uh, with Russia. And, but the, the Russians didn't consider Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Armenia which is a nuance. And that nuance was developed because the Turks pushed them into saying, we don't want to have a major fight here, do we? And so the Russians paused and they didn't help the Armenians. So Armenia was left all alone. So set the conditions for success before you fight. Third point is to strike first. We don't like to strike first. We like to sit back and go, we should, we should have the moral high ground if they strike us. I don't know if we'll be able to do that. We certainly have talked about a nuclear war, how that's not really a good idea. We don't want to be wiped out with nuclear weapons and then say, okay, we'll fire back. Uh, But we do want to have the capability if, if that happens that we could fire back. But in this case, with Azerbaijan striking first, imagine a 3d chess game. I don't know if you play 3d chess. It's a lot of fun. Now I've never played 3d go, but I think that would be a really interesting, interesting, you know, situation. So imagine a 3d go game or a 3d chess game. And now you're the white player. You move first who has the advantage. And of course, in this missile strike scenario where precision, weaponry are so, precision weapons are so important, first strike capability is critical. So the Azerbaijani struck first, of course they denied it, but they did. And uh, their first strike was really crucial. They did some really interesting things. In about uh, two weeks, they took out uh, the layered air defense, Soviet style layered air defense, Russian made equipment of the um, uh, Armenian forces. And Azerbaijan did some really interesting things like one of the things they did was they used old AN-2 Colt biplanes. No kidding, AN-2 Colt biplanes. These are used by the way by North Korea to put commandos into South Korea using these AN-2 Colts. When I commanded a tank battalion on the DMZ in Korea we had to know what they looked like and we thought about it because if they came into our area you know you see a biplane flying and you know it's a North Koreans and these things are very hard to see on radar and they fly very low. But the the Azerbaijanis didn't put pilots in them. They made them remotely piloted vehicles. And what they did was they flew up and down the Azerbaijani-Armenian line of contact. The Armenians said, hey, there's their air force. They're attacking. Let's blow them up. Lit up all their air defense, destroyed these AN-2 Colts, which are almost worthless when you talk about, you know, cost effectiveness, the missiles cost more than the planes. And then once that air defense system was all lit up, the Azerbaijanis knew where they were. And in two weeks, they were all gone. So once they gained air superiority, they now had the ability to use their loitering munitions and their UAS freely across the battlefield. And when that battle space was inundated with that, it was amazing. And if you've watched, I've watched hundreds of videos of Azerbaijani loitering munitions and drone footage. And um, I mean, it, it is it is sickening after a while because first they're taking out the air defense and you can see the radar is moving. It doesn't matter. Then they're taking out the tanks and the artillery and it's just devastating. And then they're taking out the infantry and you'll see a group of Armenians. They have seven seconds to run once they see, once they hear the drone. And this is a Herop two, Israeli aircraft industry made uh, loitering munition and it's flying up above and they have seven seconds. Once it starts its dive and it sounds like the, the sound that you heard on the old documentaries with the Stukas. And here's this, this uh, loitering munition diving down and it comes down and it flies right into the bunker these guys just ran into. It flies into the bunker. At the last minute, they're able to move that vehicle, that UAV as it's, as it's diving down, the loitering munition, they're able to adjust its target within a small parameter once they see it. So if they're coming in and they see two vehicles, One's a tank and one's an S300. They want to take out the S300. They can shift it to the S300 on the fly. That's precision. And see, that's a network capability that we need to have. We have in some places, but we need it to be common in our strike zone. And we need to designate a strike zone to do this in, which is one of the one of the um, technical ways to get this thing done. What the Azerbaijanis did was they they created a strike zone that they wanted to kill things in, and then they sent all their munitions out. They hunted. And then they they attacked. You know, first their, their sensors were crucial. They used their high-end Turkish, like the TB2 uh, UAV, which you can you can find a lot of information on, on the on the internet. Uh, they used that primarily to drop micromunitions and also as a sensor and to take pictures of the other UAVs as they attacked. Because one of the things that was crucial to the victory by Azerbaijan was their ability to control the information war narrative they use the videos from all these uh, strikes and the videos of the strikes. You see, you have the video of the, of the weapon system crashing into the vehicle, but once it hits, it goes blank. And then you have the video from a higher uh, UAV taking the video of that strike and watching the explosion. And those combined were demoralizing. And they put that on every social media outlet they were capable of so the Armenians could see it. Absolutely demoralizing. And- the, the uh, some of the uh, responses from Armenian soldiers who were very brave, who fought within their capabilities, was simply this. We could not attack them. We could not defend ourselves. We could not do anything but die. And when you're in a situation like that, your morale goes to zero and you can't do anything. You're useless. What do you do? So they had all sorts of problems. They even had some units that didn't want to go to the front. They don't want to talk about that, but uh, you know, they did. So that was crucial. Let's go on to the fourth point. You want to dominate as many of the domains as possible. The war in Nagorno-Karabakh was a multi-domain operation. The Azerbaijanis may not have called it that, but it was a multi-domain operation. All five domains were utilized, although the sea domain, Caspian Sea is of course next to Baku, but not next to nagorno karabakh was the, the, the naval part and was, was a small player. Uh, nonetheless, you want to dominate as many domains as possible they were able to dominate the land domain, the air domain. They were able to do, they did the sea domain wasn't wasn't a major factor. They were able to dominate the the cyber domain because between Azerbaijan and Turkey, they won the cyber war. And of course, Turkey was a huge actor in this cyber war. They won't want to tell you that, but it's true, and they trained a lot of the Azerbaijanis as well. And then lastly, space. And you say space, yeah, no kidding. Some of the TB2 UAS were actually communicating with satellites, Turkish satellites in space. Having those satellites and being able to to not be jammed and being able to communicate with those satellites became a crucial part. Armenia had no space connection at all. Uh, The Russians, if they gave them any space information, uh, it's not open source. And if they did, they probably gave it to them as battle damage assessment issues and also as intelligence issues. But the side that dominated space and cyber and land and air was Azerbaijan, which is why it was such a decisive victory. That is a great reason for us to study this fight. The fifth reason is that the battlefield is becoming transparent. You can't hide anymore. If you watch some of these videos, you'll see well camouflaged tanks and and air defense systems and artillery systems being obliterated in their camouflage. You'll see command posts being wiped out. Now, the Azerbaijanis primarily use tents for command posts not like us. Oh, wait a minute. So the point is, is that it doesn't take much to blow up a tent and it doesn't take much much explosive to, to fly in and destroy a core talk or a core main or a division main. And if we have those on the battlefield, they will just be targets. So we have to think seriously about command posts in sanctuary and figure out if command posts provide primarily information, why isn't that fungible by digits versus being located on the battle space. If it's located on the battle space, it's a target. Now, the battle space is expanding, so we have greater and greater depths uh, to worry about. So, I don't know if a division main could be like in England, for instance, for a battle that would happen in Eastern Europe. I don't know if it could be in California and fight in Eastern Europe. But the, the bottom line is, is that our CPs are too big. They are huge targets. We don't have good defense for those CPs. Of course, we could put a lot of assets to defend them. But right now, when you look at our air defense, our multi-layered air defense systems are not very successful at shooting down low-flying small drones and loitering munitions. And although we have systems on the, uh, the drawing boards and we have many plans and we're buying the I Am Sure ad and other things, bottom line is what do we have deployed? And what do you have and where's your priority? The battlefield becoming transparent is just so, so important that if we don't understand that, we're, we're missing a really major point because the next point is masking. We need to develop a concept of masking, even to the point that maybe we should consider it. And I know that this is going to make people's heads explode. They're going to get angry at me. Maybe we should even consider it being a principle of war. Masking is going to be, is so important to fighting in the the new, new way. Masking is both the active and passive, full-spectrum capability to be hard to target. We don't have this in our doctrine, being hard to target. It's not camouflage. It's not stealth. It is active and passive. It is everything. So, for instance, what can we do to reduce the thermal signature of all our vehicles? We should do that. What can we do to reduce the EMS signature and the leakage of all of our systems? We should do that. What can we do to be able to go to EMS silence? Imagine that. In other words, turn off all your systems. We can't do that right now you could say yes we can. Well, I don't know. If you were a battalion commander right now of a tank battalion, could you say I want all your systems turned off and I know they're all turned off? How would you know? We're talking everything from smartphones to, you know, what happens when a when a generator begins to show, you know, an electromagnetic signature because we're going to be able to see this. So we have to be, think of ways to dampen that. Those are passive, active ways. We have to think of ways to shoot stuff down, knock it down, deflect it. So if a top attack is coming down, we're able to deflect it to the left or right by, by jamming. And we have to be able to figure out how to work with our own jamming. Imagine, for instance, if we could jam a battle, stri- a strike zone. We have a strike zone designated. We, we jam that strike zone and we can operate underneath the jamming by switching frequencies just a little bit because we know the exact frequency of the jamming. Fight under a layer of jamming. So everybody else is jammed, all the enemies jammed, but we can still talk. That's the kind of thing that is part of masking. We need to have masking as a concept and we need to think about it. So if we don't, we are at great risk. Seven, top attack is becoming the decisive method of war. When you start thinking about what's happened in the last few years, when we did Desert Storm and everything else, and I know that's ancient history, but when we did that kind of stuff, we were basically fighting a war where we controlled the air. So we had three dimensions, but we were also penetrating the frontal glacis of their tanks with the power of our main tank guns. And that was decisive. We were able to knock out tank after tank after tank. And contrary to what uh, many people think, most of the uh, enemy, uh, the the Iraqi tanks in that war were destroyed by direct fire. So concept of direct fire, we understand. And now people are talking, well, we need maybe 130 millimeter cannon. Maybe we need 140. I mean, the Swiss are developing, have a prototype for a 140 millimeter tank gun. All right. I got that kind of thinking. It's very two-dimensional. I'm not saying we don't need to have capabilities to knock out a lot of armor, but boy, if you can knock it out with a much smaller system that attacks it from the top, think about that. And what happened to us when we went to Iraq and Afghanistan was the enemy attacked us from the bottom. They basically used, you know, cheap and expensive means to attack us from the bottom. Now they're using cheap and inexpensive means to attack us from the top. Well, we got to get this, okay? And our point is, is that what if we had a smaller vehicle that was much lighter and capable of being deployed? In fact, I would love to see it fit into a Conex. Imagine if you could put a ground combat vehicle that was effective in a Conex. You could ship it anywhere in the world and nobody would ever know where you are. And talk about masking when they see a ship of Conexes, they might go, oh, my gosh, is that the U.S. Army? I mean, that would be frightening. So, imagine if you could get a vehicle, a ground combat vehicle, and I'm saying like a two-man vehicle, because every time you put a man in a vehicle, you got to add 10 tons according to the rule of thumb of armor and other stuff. So, if you want a lighter vehicle, you get a a two-man vehicle. And of course, that makes people heads explode. You got to have a four-man tank crew, right? What if we didn't? What if we didn't? Anyway, so imagine if you had the capability from the ground up, sort of mask your electronic signature, and you had with you either the ability to fire top attack munitions, or robots that followed you the to fire top attack. We're asking a lot of our robots right now. We expect them to be like humans and that's crazy. All we need robots to do is go from line to column, column to line. They follow us and then we wanna fight, we put them on line and they shoot where we shoot or shoot near where we shoot and then they go back to, to column. That's all we need them to do. And if we could get that to happen, we could thicken the battlefield with a lot of extra robots. So imagine a tank that has a swarm of UAVs around it protecting it and five or six robots that do specific things. And these could be electric motor robots and they could be resupplied by UAVs that recharge them. There's all sorts of ways that we within our technology today could make this system happen. So top attack is becoming the decisive method of war right now. And until we start making roofs that are so thick they can't top attack them, which is going to increase weight and everything else, uh, it's going to continue. Number eight, long-range precision fires. There were no decisive close combat operations in the 2nd Dagona Nagorno-Karabakh War. Yes, there were close combat operations. Yes, there were city fighting. But the conditions for success were already set up when those things happened. When the Battle of, of, of Shushi happened, which was a decisive battle in the war, and this Shushi is a town that overlooks the Battle of Stepkonakert. So if you, if you control Shushi, you control Stepanakert. If you take that city and they took it with with 3,000 special forces in an early morning assault, they had already set the conditions for success for that battle. In fact, on about the second, third week of the war, the Armenians' counterattack started to move forward for a counterattack. And while they were moving forward, that's when they were annihilated by by UAVs because the Azerbaijanis had already gained air, air superiority. Now, the Azerbaijanis flew 600 sorties of aircraft, only 600 sorties. The rest was done by UAVs the uh, Armenians didn't fly hardly at all. And that was um, partially because they could not take down the Azerbaijani uh, air defense. So anyway, the long range precision fire capability using both dumb artillery shells, smart artillery shells and brilliant munitions like some of the UAS systems, those combined to create more uh, decisive results in standoff than in close combat. Now that doesn't mean close combat isn't going to be important. Close combat is always something we need to be able to do. We are the best at close combat in the world. Our challenge is is that if we fight the next war and never get into it, we've lost one of our great advantages. So we have to have the ability, and we're working on this as an army, to develop our own long-range precision fires capability and to deny the enemy the capability. But this is a trend that is going to continue, and we're going to see fewer and fewer decisive actions at, at, in close combat, and more and more that are going to be at, at standoff. Now, the enemy, now there's, there's tactics you can use, of course, to force close combat. The Viet Cong and the Viet Minh, for instance, and the Vietnamese in the, in the Vietnam Wars, they did that. It was called, you know, basically get close to their belt buckle. Don't let them use their air support. You can do that in cities. So you see the trend there. But we have to be able to fight this kind of fight and be able to take out their ability and be able to maneuver close so that we can get into the close combat where we're really good. And then last 10, I call it war accelerated. Everything's gonna happen at faster and faster speeds. The ability to see the enemy, the ability to get a target uh, identified, to agree to fire on it, to kill it. That kill chain is going to turn over time with AI assistance into a kill web. Now I define a kill chain and a kill web totally different than most people. They use the words interchangeably. I strongly disagree. Kill chain is what we do today. Human in the loop or human on the loop, controlling everything for a lot of good reasons. We can get into ethics and and, and all the laws of all that, you know, and talk about ours. But the point is, is that that that's how we do it and that is slow. It is similar to the old call for fire for artillery. How long did it take to get rounds on target? When this turns into a kill web, that's when it's AI powered when AI is the one doing the synchronization of the targeting. You see, this AI doesn't have to be brilliant. It just has to be able to synchronize the type of target, the type of weapon, and what's available. So, for instance, multi-domain operation, your AI immediately says there's 10 targets out there. Of those 10, five need to be killed with Navy weapons. Two need to be killed with Army weapons. Three need to be killed. You, know, you go on from there and you start killing them with the right weapons. Maybe they're attacked by cyber. So that instead of being destroyed, they're just confused. Maybe they're attacked by EW. And when all that happens with a synchronization program that is AI-led, then the human on the loop will push the button and say, attack. And that strike zone will now be done at hyperspeed with human out of the loop. And that's the next transition. And that's why we have to really think hard about this and figure out not only how to fight against it, but how to fight with it. Those are my 10 lessons. Uh, I think that, that this war, the 2nd to Agona-Karabakh War, has to be studied in depth, and we have to derive lessons learned. And it should be an ongoing dialogue. I'm not saying my 10 lessons are, are, you know, there aren't more, or that maybe some of them can be revised. I want a dialogue to happen so we can discuss these things. Uh, it's just, it, is an, it, is, it is as important for us to study this as it was for General Storey and General Depew to look at the 73 Yom Kippur War. I mean, from that, we came up with Airland Battle and the Big Five. From this war, we should be able to derive certain things. Now, some people might say, well, it was too small. You know, the Azerbaijanis and the Armenians, they don't rise to the level of us, of us being able to, uh, to study them. And I think all of that is just arrogance, and it is something that if we do that is to our detriment. We have got to analyze and study this, and we've got to figure out where we need to change. Because right now, if we put an armored brigade combat team in a bad situation against a similar foe, well, I'd love to war game that with you. Now, about winning wars, you know, I think that America could probably win a war against almost anybody on earth. We don't want to have to fight, but if we have to fight, we're gonna win. But at what cost, at what cost? And how do we deter wars? So we can deter these wars much better if we're able to, um, uh, you know, look at these things and develop the forces that really are credible. Because right now everybody knows it's hard for us to get from from far to near, and when we finally get there, we've only got so much, you know. Unless they're going to fight in Wyoming, we're going to have a problem, and we might even have a problem in Wyoming because we we don't really have a base there. But I'm you know army base, but I'm just saying we got to really get to think about how we fight this, and if you start looking at the connections about where the next wars are going to be, just study the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War and start looking at the possible connections. So imagine connections like Georgia, you know, where you've got the Russians who hate the Georgians, who would be love, love to go in there. The Russians are studying the lessons learned from this carefully. So are the Chinese. What if they used uh, similar means to take out Georgia? What about Taiwan? The Chinese have said they're going to do something in Taiwan for a long time. Uh, maybe one day they'll live up to their words. If they do, what if they do a, a um, combination missile strike, UAS strike instead of an actual ground invasion, and they siege Taiwan for a period of time? Uh, the Donbass and Crimea, imagine if if right now Turkey couldn't find anyone to make its engine, so it made a deal with Ukraine. Ukraine is now making engines for their UAS. Well, that means Ukraine's got all the capability with UAS soon that uh, Turkey had that they gave Azerbaijan. So You know, will Ukraine use these against uh, forces in the Donbass? Will will the Russians use this against the Ukrainians? Uh, Pakistan, India. Pakistan is a fanboy of Azerbaijan. They love the Azerbaijanis. And they're following them closely and going to do everything they can. So the next time you see a fighting going on between Indians and PACs, you're going to see UAS. And you're going to see some of the other methods that came out of this war. Of course, North Korea. You know, North Korea has a very limited air force and it's ancient but they could have a very effective drone force for the same amount for a little bit of money and um, they could be state of the art. So that's interesting. That's a capability we have to consider. Of course, there could be a third Nagorno-Karabakh war because the Armenians are really angry. They're, 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 their whole society is collapsing over this war and they've embraced the Russians basically said, please make me, uh, we want to join the, uh, you know, the protection of, uh, of the Russians because there's no other body to turn to. Whether or not the, the Armenians will be allowed or will want to go into another world, we'll see. But this war has not solved the problems of hatred and uh, the desire for Nagorno-Karabakh to be part of Armenia. And then, of course, the next decapitation, political assassination somewhere in the world, some of the systems used in uh, the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War give you a, a, um, uh, an inkling as to how that would go. And I wouldn't be surprised if Wagner Group and other mercenary groups start becoming drone experts rather than risking their people. I mean, drones for hire, have drone, you know, we'll travel, who knows. Those are the 10 lessons that I've come up with. There are many others, and I think this war should be studied, we should be discussed, and the more that we learn from it, the better off our army can be if we take those lessons to heart and do something.
1: Sir, thanks for that answer. Um, and, and I agree completely with we have to take advantage of the use cases we have and mine them for information. We, we, can't, we can't ignore things when they're, they're right on our doorstep. And, and that's kind of, um, you know, one of the tenets of Mad Scientist is really why it was stood up. We don't have all the answers, you know, and we're not ever going to say that we do. We have to be lifelong learners. Um, and, and let me say that the, the 10 lessons that you have here are important and comprehensive things that we've been writing about and talking about and trying to get the discussion started on, um, just to, just to name off a few, the speeding up of the battlefield, uh, hiders versus finders on the battlefield, um, unmanned systems. I mean, your top 10 list reads like the syllabus for, for mad scientist masterclass. Um, so I want to take the question we just asked you and kind of flip it and say, you know, we're not the only ones who are going to be mining this for lessons learned. How are countries like Turkey or Iran or others going to take what happened here? How's it going to affect them moving forward as well?
0: Well, that's a great question. And I I read the Turkish newspapers and the Russian newspapers and the Chinese newspapers to find out, you know, as much information that I can open source. The Turks, of course, are now in a booming uh, UAS uh, uh, market. They are selling their wares to everyone who wants an Air Force. They just recently, you know, sold a bunch of stuff to, uh, to Ukraine. They'll be selling other stuff around the world. There are countries that want, from this victory that they've had, there are countries that want this capability. And if you think about it, in the past, missiles and artillery have always been the poor man's air force. When you couldn't afford an air force, but you could get artillery to shoot at a city, you know, that was that was one way to, to have some power. And if you couldn't get an air force, you, you did your best to have an air defense system, which is why everybody bought Soviet Russian style air defense framework. And of course, if you think about the 73 war, that was a telling experience for several reasons. One was the Egyptian and Syrian air defense umbrellas knocked out so many Israeli aircraft in the first few days of that war that the Israelis had to change tactics and had to focus on the air defense. And until they took out the air defense, they couldn't operate the way they wanted to. So that system was fairly good and lasted up until basically 2020. Now we have the ability to take out that air defense with UAS. I mean, these loitering munitions and kamikaze UAVs that come in and destroy the anti-aircraft systems and the and the air defense systems are now cheaper and harder to catch and harder to find and stop than ever before. So as a seed weapon, they have a tremendous capability. In fact, the Israelis, which have also benefited tremendously from this, everybody wants to buy the up loitering munitions. Marines just bought some. Uh, and, and others. And I'm sure the Army is, is looking carefully at them. I mean, we've had the idea of loitering munitions in our thought process and in our industry for years. It's nothing new. We had the brilliant anti tank BAT artillery fire device that we, we talked about um, back in the 90s, but we didn't develop it, didn't need to. We had other capabilities. Now we need to start looking very carefully at it. The Israelis just uh, uh, fielded uh, for sale to an Asian country, a, uh, which I hope wasn't China, uh, a loitering munition. Uh, fired off the back deck of, of any ship you want. So these these HAROPs, HAROP 2s, they, on the ground, in the ground version, they come in a truck version that fires nine or 12 missiles. So what happens is it looks kind of like a MLRS where the truck comes out and then one at a time, these things shoot out. And then they go and they loiter for six hours uh, the, uh, under the, uh, the HAROP version, HAROP 2 version. And then if they don't find the target that fits their targeting parameters automatically, then they can fly back to a designated airfield and land and be reused. Well, you put this on a ship, you're probably not going to get them to fly back and be reused unless you've got an aircraft carrier or a land base nearby. And many of them have land bases nearby, so that could be possible. But primarily, you had the thing loitering, and this loiters up to 12 hours, the new one. So if it loiters for 12 hours over a patch of sea, over the South China Sea someplace, and sees a ship that it wants to hit, it doesn't take much to take a ship down. And that's all top attack. There are many countries out there that are benefiting from this and all of the countries that I mentioned in the connections piece where I said, you know, there's a possibility that, that these could be used, you know, in the Donbass and, and Crimea, uh, uh, Turkey versus Greece in the Mediterranean, the Turks are trying to get uh, a sea lane from, from Turkey to Libya that they control because of the oil wealth that's underneath that, that sea. And they want Greece out of the way and Greece claims a lot of that because of their islands. So you can see a war between Turkey and Greece in the Med, uh, Taiwan, uh, again, the thing we talked about would be interesting if you didn't have an aircraft carrier, but you had uh, a lot of, uh, of loitering munitions and, um, and uh, UAVs that you could put on a freighter. You get it close enough, you can wreak havoc with those guys for a while. Uh, Pakistan, India, of course, Korea, North Korea versus South Korea, and our forces there, there's great uh, possibilities they're going to be taking advantage of this. Uh, to answer your question, uh, the people that are making money off of this right now Uh, are the the, the Turks and the Israelis. And and they're selling their wares to anyone who will buy. And anybody who has the money to purchase a proficient and capable precision air force can now do so. And whether they're actually operated by Turkish operators, or whether the Turkish operators, whether the Turks train them, or the Israelis, hard to say. But uh, in the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, there were a lot of Turks flying some of those uh, UAVs, and a lot of them uh, we're looking over the shoulders of other folks. So um, there's a completely new industry. And what's interesting is the guy who started the TB2 and the whole Biraktar industry was trained in the US. So, you know, never, never give, uh, forget the idea of a Harvard education. It's a good thing. And uh, he's now, um, you know, a millionaire in Turkey and a national hero, because he's created the sword of
2: the Turks. No, that's a fantastic answer for us to consider those perspectives and the lessons learned. Uh, this has been really, really informative, sir. We'd like to uh, transition to our rapid fire questions, but take your time. Uh, this is where we, we really get to know our guests. Um, so, first question is what technology or trend keeps you up at night?
0: The idea of a artificial intelligence leverage kill web. We need that first. And we need to be able to fight against that same kind of thing. The ability to synchronize those weapons in time, space, and purpose at machine speeds is a decisive war winner. If we do not develop a kill web, and again, I I define a kill web as one that is leveraged by AI and a kill chain, which is primarily leveraged by humans. That doesn't mean the kill web isn't human on the loop at certain points. You know, so you turn it on and you tell it what to do. And if you set the strike zone right, you've given the parameters, it can all be done there. And I think all of that could be done ethically and it could be done morally correct and all that in the time of war. But we need to have it first and we need to develop that kill web. And if we don't have an AI leveraged kill web, I assure you that our enemies will.
2: No, absolutely, sir. Thank you for that. And what is something about you that you're willing to share on air that most people might not know.
0: Well, most people don't know that I'm an avid sci-fi guy. I love science fiction. And I love watching uh, science fiction stories. I love time travel movies. I, I don't think there's a sci-fi series I haven't watched to a certain point until I finally say, oh, that's ridiculous, turn it off. But uh, the idea, I think, I think that everyone, everyone if, they wanted, if they want to develop some creativity, they need to read first sci-fi. I just read a sci-fi book called Old Man's War that I love. And if you haven't read it, it's great. But there's others out there. But the bottom line is, is that I think you need to read some sci-fi for creativity. The other thing is, is you need to read some poetry. And if you want to be a better writer, poetry is very important. For instance, one of the challenges that I always, one of my big challenges to myself is what's the first line of your next book? How would that grab someone to read it? That is hard. I mean, some of the best books out there have great first lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, I mean, you go into that and you just go, that's a great first line. You know, so though that's important. But sci-fi would be the the one thing I think that, you know, people who know me well know that, but, you know, others don't.
2: Absolutely. Marley was dead to begin with. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> or, the,
0: or the clock struck 13.
2: right. Right. Um, no, that's, that's really good insight, sir. And that's actually a good segue, too. This tells us a lot, again, about our guests. What is your favorite movie?
0: Uh, you know, this is a great question. I use this question often. I teach leadership. And so I teach leadership to uh, organizations, CEOs, corporations, governments, you know, like city governments and stuff. And um, uh, it's a lot of fun. And it's great to raise people's leadership awareness. So I always get a chance to get to know them better by saying, what's your favorite movie? Write it down. You know, I've listed 10 movies that I love just to be able to look at which ones I love the best. And I always have this problem because they they fight each other. But bar none, my favorite movie, which I can watch forever, is High Noon. Now, I know it's a classic and I know some people will go, hi, what? You know, and it's about it's about a cowboy. It's about a sheriff, okay? It's about a sheriff who has to do the right thing. And if you've never watched High Noon, I recommend it. Now you know second third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh movies you know I think I think they would all kind of derive from that high noon kind of thing they're not all westerns by any mean in fact even on my list I put Doctor Strangelove but because uh, you got to have a few comedies but um, you know Seven Samurai is one of the movies I love and if you if you want to train army officers and you've never watched Seven Samurai watch the old black and white Seven Samurai you know with uh, with English subtitles and train your officers using Seven Samurai. It's an amazing story, and, and Kurosawa was, was, was a brilliant director. But there's others, of course, um, uh, that I love. For instance, 1776 is my favorite musical. I could watch 1776 forever, and if you've never watched 1776, you ought to watch it. It's just great. Uh, you learn about you know John Adams and the, and the Declaration of Independence and why our nation is so special and why it's worth fighting for.
2: No, I appreciate that, sir, and I think that might be our first Western.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I may be kind of a legacy in my movie choice, but I'll tell you, your favorite movie has to mean something to you. It has to, it has to uh, somehow approach your visualization of what the ideal character competencies and commitment should be, you know? And so, there's a lot of movies out there that are fun. I got it. But that movie to me is one that when I watch it, I just am mesmerized, you know, because it, it was good acting. It was, it was amazing. The, the idea that the clock, it shows you time. The clock is always being shown, and you see it's getting closer to noon. You know, the deadline's coming. He's trying to get people to help him. Nobody will help him. He's got to make a choice. He's got every reason not to make the hard choice, you know, to make the easier, to do the easier thing rather than the harder right, you know, to actually do the the thing that's correct. And uh, it's a great story.
2: So I should not use The Big Lebowski as my idealized.
0: <laughs> no, no. I, it, it all it all depends on who you are and what you think is important. <laughs> uh, there are many fun movies out there. For instance, uh, you know, I love Army of Darkness, but it's not my favorite movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you for coming on. I think we have so many lessons to learn. Um, and thank you for sharing all your insights with us. It's been fantastic. Where, where can our audience follow you at? Right. Well, they can go to
0: American dash leadership.com and, uh, they can reach me through that. Um, and, uh, if you go to Amazon, you can see the books that I, that I've written and I haven't, an, I have an author's page so you can go there. Um, and, uh, if they want to contact me, they can reach me through American leadership.com. So that's American dash leadership.com or contact you guys and, and forward an email to me and I'll, and I'll, uh, uh, contact them. But our biggest goal with what you guys do, and again, it's, I'm so, so very happy to see what you guys do and very proud of you, uh, is to get the dialogue going and to be thinking. We used to do this just through professional journals because there was no internet back in the land before time. You know, now we have the ability to talk and communicate, interact in ways that are so powerful. So, we need to keep thinking because if we stop thinking, uh, you know, we're going to lose people in bad way. We don't need to do that. We need to be thinking ahead. Absolutely. Thank you so
2: much, sir. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Colonel Retired John Anto, author, consultant, and leadership coach. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at Army ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.